What do we look for in a leader? What do we look for in a king? And when you say that question kind of from an historical perspective throughout the world, throughout history, what do people hope to see in their king, their leader? In our country, we don't have a king, but we have a president. And in many ways, the president um, embodies at least some of what a king does in the sense of there's one person leading the nation, although our form of government has more to it, obviously, than that. But still, that person, that office is, is very important. And then whether or not we like the current president or the former president or any president, just, just step back from the, the politics of the moment and just think of the leader of our nation and, and, and what we hope that person will be and, and how much of our current political um, anger and division is because of that very question. What are we looking for in our leaders, in the leader of the country? This is a question that people throughout history have had. This is a question that Jesus was dealing with when he's coming in to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey with people shouting and waving palms and dropping their cloaks before him. There's something about leadership, and yet, as exciting as this day was, it was, it was a kind of a tale of two emotions in Jesus' heart. There was a certain degree that he really enjoyed the songs and the excitement and the praise, but there was something else going on in his heart that was also sorrowful, and that's why I titled this message today, Palms of joy and of sorrow, because it was not just the songs, it was not just the praise, there was also something else going on. Palm Sunday is the, a story that you see in all four Gospels, and it's too easy to take a day like this, and most of us are probably rather familiar with this event and what happened, and we can kind of simplify it. Jesus came riding on a donkey, they waved palms, they shouted the Hosanna. That's about it. It's nice, it's good, we were glad for it. But as usual, there's so much more going on when we really take a time to, to look not just at the, the text itself, not just the verses itself from, in this case, Luke, but you can, again, see the same story in Mark and Matthew and John, but to put it into the fuller context, the fuller story, the developing story of what has happened and what's about to happen. So when we read here in the 28th verse of the 19th chapter of Luke, it begins with these words at the start. It says, after Jesus said this. So that should have you pause right there. So if you're just jumping in, I'm going to read about Palm Sunday from Luke. Well, after Jesus said this, well, what did he say before that? He gave a parable called the parable of the ten minas. Now, this is a very similar parable to the parable of the ten talents that we see in Matthew's gospel, where a landowner was a, a, a boss, basically, gave three servants the opportunity to invest for him while he was gone. And two of them did an excellent job at that, but one did not. And when the master came back, 
He was, he was angry at the one who didn't do anything with what he gave him. And this is what it says then in the 27th verse, the last verse before 28, obviously, at the end of this, this parable. Now remember, it's a parable. It's a story that teaches a larger meaning. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That was in the context of this parable of this king in this story, whose servant, one servant, didn't carry out what he was supposed to be doing. And that's an important understanding for us today, is to realize that what were people expecting? And, and, and what, when, when their king finally came, were they ready? So Jesus comes into town here, and this is the, the section in your outline of preparation. There was preparation that had to happen for Jesus to uh, come into this town on this donkey. And I want to also back up earlier in the chapter to the 11th verse when um, it says this, when they were listening to this, they went to tell them, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So why did Jesus even tell that parable? Because just before that, there was a story about a man named Zacchaeus who was an agent of Rome, a Jewish man, who came to hear the, see Jesus. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, as you remember as we looked through the, the Gospel of Mark a year ago, that, or two years ago, I guess now, um, but everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd from, from the very beginning of his ministry. And yet, before Palm Sunday, it was bigger than ever because of what John tells us about in John chapter 11 when Jesus had the miracle of rising a man from the grave, a man named Lazarus. And that news, in just a week or two before Palm Sunday, spread like wildfire. So you had a, several events coalescing at one time. It was time for the Passover. So every year the Jewish people, people traveled, gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It was really their greatest holiday. It was, it was like in our culture, Christmas. I mean, Christmas isn't just a day. It, it, it's become a whole month almost in the sense of, of preparation and various celebrations and, and ways that we're happy about it. And so there was this excitement in the air just because it was Passover again. But now add to that the stories that have been circulating about Jesus of Nazareth and all the miracles that have happened and the things that have taken place. And if that weren't enough, just recently, just the other week, news was spreading about a man had been risen from the grave. I mean, he was in the grave. He was wrapped up in the, in the grave clothes and in there for four days. And Jesus came and brought him to life again. And so all of these things were coming together and Jesus knew there was excitement about him, but the expectation was that, wow, the kingdom of God, as it says here in the 11th verse, is going to happen now, at once. And Jesus knew that wasn't what God had in mind. It wasn't even what he preached or taught about but he still had to go through with what was, he was going to face 
in these coming days. And it tells us that they went to um, you know, past the, the Mount of Olives in, um, a couple, in a chapter ahead in the 37th verse of the 21st chapter of, of Luke. It says this, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. So this week ahead, he would return to that location each night. And tells us then about some detail about getting this donkey. Now, it's called a colt in Scripture, but most scholars believe it actually was a donkey because of what it says in a prophecy that Matthew points out in Zechariah 9.9 about the, the Messiah riding a donkey into Jerusalem. So this was a fulfillment of that, as Matthew points out in, um, in Matthew 21, 4 and 5. So... He sends two disciples ahead. So often, Jesus sent the disciples in pairs. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it talks about Jesus sending out the 70 even, but they were sent out in pairs. Another time he sent out just the 12, he sent them in pairs. So here again, just for this small task, but still important one, to go find this donkey, he sent two of the disciples. And then there's also a symbolism now. It was not uncommon in the ancient world for a king, after he had victory, he would come marching back into town, quite literally. And there would be word sent ahead of time. The king has come back. He's just conquered our neighboring nations, conquered our enemies through his leadership. Let's all hail our king. And the king would come with, with great pomp and circumstance, and the people would shout and they would throw their cloaks in the road, and they would grab branches from trees and palms and, and lie them ahead of them. And so, in a way, that's what Jesus is doing, but the king would ride the biggest, strongest horse that he could find. And yet Jesus is riding, very intentionally, a donkey. I mean, don't you think if God wanted Jesus to ride a horse and look more kingly than ever any king before him, even David, in this same city, he could have done so? And yet there's a message being sent by not riding the big mighty horse, by riding a beast of burden, by riding an animal that, you know, I don't know when this exactly happened, but eventually... The, the name of that animal would be a derogatory word. And, and yet here's Jesus, once again, turning the tables. I mean, what's he done for three years? This, this Messiah that many people believed came into the world, how? In poverty, to a poor family, announced to the poorest of the poor, shepherds. From day one, literally, Jesus was sending the message that this is not the way that you think or expect your king, your Messiah, your Savior to be. And yet he is that. He is all that and more than you ever expected. So he taught in reverse. He taught that if you want to be great, serve. If you want to live, die to yourself. 
And if you want to be rich, become poor. And this is the message of Jesus. So even in this great moment of excitement, he's not riding the horse, he's riding the donkey. And then there's the joy, the cloaks being spread before him. Um, in, in Luke 23, verse 34, at the cross, it tells us this. <clears throat> Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing while he's on the cross. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, why would they do that? Because cloaks are valuable. And so just the fact that the people are willing to throw them down and lay them down for the, the king, in this case Jesus, to come by, was a risky thing for them. Now, presumably, they would throw it down, the group would come by, and then they'd go get theirs and put it back on. But that was no small thing. With a lot of those people, that was the only cloak they had, and it was not easy to get one. And the fact that the, the Roman soldiers wanted what Jesus had on, and it, I'm sure that what Jesus had was not the most you know, expensive piece of, of clothing, and yet those, those still had value. So people took what was of value to them, and laid it down before the king. So there's another sign in this story of, of laying down what is valuable to us, casting down our crowns, casting down the things that we, that we put our value in, in this world, in this life, and saying, Lord, this is yours. This is yours. Isn't that a beautiful sign of the Savior coming in? Palms themselves are interesting, too, because... It doesn't say palms in Luke. It doesn't say palms in Matthew. It doesn't say palms in Mark. It says, now actually, Luke mentions nothing about it, but Matthew and Mark say they, they cut branches. They didn't specify palms. Only John specifies palms. And scholars believe that actually Jerusalem at that time in the immediate area didn't even have palm trees. However, the place that Jesus just came from in the direction of Jericho, did have palm trees. So you almost get the sense that his disciples were so excited about this that they were anticipating this parade, cut palm branches while they were still in Jericho, and brought them with them. There was an expectation about the coming Messiah. And that, too, is a sign for us to, to expect God to come, to expect God to come in as we lay down our things of value and we give him things of value and beauty from this world to receive the Messiah in our lives, in, in, in our homes, in any way that we can. <clears throat> if you look at the 37th verse, back to Luke uh, 28, excuse me, Luke 19 once again, <clears throat> The 37th verse says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God. The whole crowd of disciples. Remember, disciples wasn't just the 12. There was probably hundreds at this point, many more. 
And, and why were they even calling themselves disciples? Now, many of them legitimately were following Jesus and learning from him and, and you know, trying to apply his teaching to their lives and, and to learn more about why he was here and what he wanted. But why were they shouting in loud voices? Continuing in that 37th verse, for all the miracles they had seen. Think about the miracles that Jesus did and the many eyewitnesses to these miracles over the years. Think about the recipients of those miracles. I, I think it's not hard to imagine. I don't think it's a big jump, even though it doesn't say it directly in, in the text. But it's not that much to say some of the people who never could see before until Jesus brought them sight were probably in that parade shouting the loudest, Hosanna. Some of the people who couldn't speak before Jesus gave them the ability to speak were in that shout, using the voice he gave them, Hosanna. Some of the people walking along that parade with Jesus were lame and couldn't walk until Jesus touched them and healed them. They were walking aloud, walking with, with a great strut and great excitement in their voice, shouting, Hosanna. It's, it's so beautiful to think about those parts of the story that are kind of hidden in plain sight as we, as we go to scriptures. And so much joy there. He's, he's brought in, um, you know, like a king is brought in. And glory in the highest, they're shouting. Now, what does that remind you of? The angels when he was born, glory in the highest at the shepherds on that hillside, you know, were just blown away with this moment of this, this angelic choir before them. Glory in the highest. Heaven was singing when he was born. Earth is singing right now. And yet they don't know. Only Jesus knows that his death was approaching. He's not marching to the throne of Jerusalem or even the throne of the planet Earth. He is marching to his death. He is not marching to overthrow this world. He is marching in to overthrow death itself for all people. But the people didn't understand that yet. And so... Jesus was probably torn in this moment that, that, yes, this is exciting hearing these praises. And by the way, the word Hosanna, what that um, literally means is, save we pray, save now. Hosanna. Save we pray, save now. This is the only time in the Bible you will find this word is on this event. In fact, Luke doesn't even use that word, okay? But the others do, so we believe, of course, that they were saying that. But if you go back again to the 11th verse of, of Luke 19, and it says, you know, while they were listening to this, they went up to tell him a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, that people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The reason they were there, 
was because Jesus did these miracles, because maybe they received that miracle, or their, their cousin, their friend, their neighbor did, or they just heard about it, and they were excited. The reason they were there is because they heard that Lazarus was risen from the dead, and maybe they were his family member, or his neighbor, or his friend, or they just heard about it, but they were there. But what was their expectation of Jesus that day? This was going to be a conquering king. This is the Messiah who's going to save us, save us now. Hosanna. And he did, and he would save them, but not in the way they thought. It was once again a reversal of thinking. It was not this life giver to everyone, although he would be, but to get there, it was going to this humiliating death. And that brings us into the sorrow part of Palm Sunday. And only Jesus felt this sorrow. Only Jesus knew this. Even though the disciples were told on at least three occasions since Mount Trans uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on Mount Hermon and the Spirit of God told them, this is my son, From that day on, he told those disciples, those three and the rest, he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, he's going to suffer, he's going to die. But they just didn't hear it. In fact, in this moment, in this excitement, coming into Passover week, coming into these crowds, coming off of the excitement of Lazarus, Every one of those disciples, that was a distant memory of all the words of Jesus, of all the sermons of Jesus, of all the key things that he said that they, that they hung to in their hearts. His words of, I'm going to Jerusalem and going to suffer and die and three days rise again, that was way off their radar. Why would it be? Why wouldn't it be? Because there they are. They're part of this excitement. And imagine how they feel. Here's this one, people hailing as a king, and they're with him, and they've been with him all along, and they're his chosen disciples. This is great. But Jesus knew the sorrow. It says that he wept as he approached. Verse 41, he wept. We have another occasion that Jesus wept, that same occasion when Lazarus was raised from the grave just before that happened and he met his friends, Mary and Martha, and saw their turmoil, saw their pain, their grief about their brother. And Jesus, being their friend, felt for them and he wept. And now here he is again, weeping. Weeping. And I bet the crowd didn't see that, did they? And they saw this man, he's excited, he's smiling, and yet it's... It's great, but it's not. This is good, but there's some pain that's going to come. And you notice he's not weeping because he knows that he's going to have to go to the cross. That was in his heart. That was going to be hard, no doubt about it. But he's weeping because they did not understand. Verse 46, it is written. Um, no, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Verse 42, and even if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and then hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave a stone, one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus knew this this crowd was short-lived. This noise would fade quickly. This crowd would disappear in only a few days that happened but Jesus is also speaking about something that would happen about 40 years from that day when the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and it took a few years there was this war between Roman Rome and the Jews but what chance did they have Exactly the way Jesus described it happened. One day when the Romans surrounded them and this was how you won a war. In fact, we look at the way the Russians are attacking Ukraine very sadly, tragically. They try to cut off cities. So they can't get in, they can't get out, you cut off their supplies. That's an ancient tactic. And the Romans used that. And they surrounded Jerusalem and cut off supplies. And the Jews themselves were were infighting amongst themselves as to what to do or not do about it. And there was a man named Josephus who was part of this. And he was a Jewish man. And he was also a very well educated in the Roman world and the Greek world. And he was an historian and wrote down in great detail what happened. And but his own people didn't trust him because they thought he was a friend of the Romans. And the Romans didn't trust him because they thought he was a friend of the Jews, so the poor guy was kind of caught. But he writes how when finally the day came when Rome came through the walls and began to destroy the city, he tells us that every stone was pulled off of the other. And it was completely leveled, including and especially the temple. And a couple of interesting things about the temple. Part of the reason that might have happened, but this was the instruction of Aspasian, who at that point was Caesar. And he said, when you get to Jerusalem, rip apart the temple and pull apart all the stones, these massive stones, for two reasons. One, there's gold everywhere even between the stones. So they wanted the gold. And two, you know what? We can use these stones for something else. This isn't 100% clear in, in um, historical record, but there's fairly good evidence that they took the stones from the temple, dragged them all the way to Rome, and decided to put them to use in a bigger building called the Colosseum. Now, isn't that interesting? the place of sacrifice for God's people went to a place where God's people were sacrificed in game. And so this is what Jesus understood prophetically as he knew riding in Jerusalem what was going to happen to his people, what was going to happen to this city, what was going to happen to the temple. But he also knew that as he went to that cross in a few days, 
the moment he died, the curtain in the temple was going to be torn in half. And that was symbolic of this place of sacrifice, this place of forgiveness, this place of worship is no longer required, is no longer necessary because he became the ultimate sacrifice. And the way to God that 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 curtain in the temple protected at the Holy of Holies from everyone else. No one could go in there but the high priest. But now Jesus, the ultimate high priest, was going to go in there on behalf of all of us, grab sin and death, pull it out and say, you're forgiven, just believe. And that's been the message ever since. So what kind of a savior are we looking for today? Are we looking for one who's going to give us all the rules and tell us how to obey them and give the strength to do it? Are we looking for a savior who's going to conquer evil in the world and and make our country great so that we can blow away everyone else who we don't like? Are we looking for a savior that um, is going to keep us comfortable and happy and... um, give us good things? What, what, what is our, our image of savior? What is our image of king? What is our image of leader? And when we realize that the ultimate authority is, is our creator in heaven and he gave us a living example of what God is like in his son Jesus. And so what can we do to honor our king Jesus? We can do the things that he did. We can put first those that are less fortunate than us. We can put first, put first those who are suffering. We can put first those who are under the, the boot of some form of injustice. That's always been what he wants us to do. Yes, he promised us forgiveness and we receive that. Praise God and we have that. So in having received that forgiveness from him, from this king who wrote in Jerusalem, what are you going to do with it in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for a joyous day. Thank you that we celebrate the celebration that took place so many years ago. And yet we know in the heart of Jesus, our Savior, it was also a hard day. And help us to recognize the places in our world that still suffer from sorrow. The places in our world that or under the, the boot of oppression in some form. Indeed, we pray for peace in Ukraine. We pray that the, the authorities in Russia who are bringing this attack on would, would succumb to peace, would, would succumb to, to really sanity, and that the people of Russia, as Kim shared, would not be Um, swept into the propaganda they're putting forth. But more than that, Lord, in our own lives, may we help people to see truth. Not just to preach the Bible, but to see truth in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.